right. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, Ben. And uh, it's an honor, Dr. Black and Dr. Merkel, to be, to be included in this conference. And uh, Michael, I don't know where you are, but in light of your, your kind of dire statistics, I think it's very encouraging that this many people will be here at Friday night at 9.30. I mean, that's a, that's a good sign maybe for the future of the Greek language. The title of my talk is An Ideal Beginning Greek Grammar. Note the question mark. This was the topic that was assigned to me by email by Dr. Black and Dr. Merkel nearly two years ago. The title is a question, um, and, and the answer to this question is, is really rather easy. Yes. Yes, there is an ideal beginning Greek grammar. It is, it is co-authored by Ben Merkel and myself, and it comes out in 2020. And you should buy a copy as soon as it's available on Amazon. Answer the question. Okay. Uh, taking a little bit, uh, stepping a little more seriously here. Of course, there are many good grammars out there. I'm just going to mention uh, until ours comes out, right? You can uh, look at David Allen Black's fantastic, Learn to Read New Testament Greek. Give a little shout out for my colleagues here. Stan Porter's co-authored Fundamentals of New Testament Greek. Con Campbell's Reading Biblical Greek. Uh, we were going to put Michael Halcombe's works up here, but we only have 45 minutes for the talk, and so we couldn't put all 50 of the beginning Greek books up there. But there are lots of ones out there. I'm going to take my, my topic even a little more seriously now and just tell you to whom I'm talking. So the assigned talk was to be peop to people who've completed one year of Greek or, or maybe a little more. So I'm talking to students, current students, pastors, alumni. I know there are scholars in here and the temptation, there's a prideful temptation to want to speak to them, but I really want to speak to uh, my primary target audience. So in answering this question, is there an ideal beginning Greek grammar? I'm going to look at five essential characteristics, what I, I think after teaching Greek for about 20 years, what I believe are five essential characteristics of a beginning Greek grammar, of an ideal Greek grammar, and then two warnings. So just as 2,000 years ago, a poor little lad had five loaves and two fishes, I've got two caveats and five characteristics. So we're going to go with those now, starting with the caveats. Starting, oh, and Nick Ellis, I was going to give a shout out for Nick Ellis's work as well. Beginning Greek grammar. Okay, so um, first off, caveat number one, warning number one when we talk about the ideal beginning Greek grammar. And this is a wisdom from a child stationary. Okay, I have an 11 year old daughter named Annabelle, and she showed, showed me this wonderful postcard recently. Okay, I don't know if you can read it, but it says, Always be yourself unless you can be a unicorn, and then always be a unicorn. Okay, it would be pretty amazing to be a unicorn, especially if you were an 11-year-old girl, but it's an impossibility, isn't it? So rather than seeking some unattainable ideal, one should embrace the reality that God has providentially given you. In the case of the unicorn question, the providential reality God has given you is a human body rather than a unicorn body, right? We might compare this existential question uh, to our search for the ideal Greek grammar. The reality is there is no ideal Greek grammar. Sure, there are some that are better than others. Um, but I'm speaking again to a target audience who's completed at least one year of Greek grammar. The grammar that you should embrace is the one that you have on your shelf. Or better yet, the one that your teacher selected for you. There is a great tendency, I see this all the time, for students, alumni, and pastors to think if they just purchase the next resource 
they just get the next book, the next video series, the next whatever that they pay for, that then they're really going to learn Greek and Hebrew. It's sort of like the next dieting plan. But the problem that's lacking is willpower and time and hard work. Those are the major elements that are lacking in really learning Greek and Hebrew rather than some sort of pedagogical method. Michael, how come I keep calling your name when I pick on you if you've left? Okay, maybe he's left. But he, we had this conversation providentially. I'm reading Augustine's Confessions. I was reading it on the plane ride down. And we talked about that where uh, Augustine talks about learning Latin and learning Greek. But it is interesting. I think his point's very valid. The reason that Augustine gives for being a poor student of Greek was he was lazy. He said, I preferred to play games. I preferred to gamble. I preferred to run with my friends rather than do the hard work of learning. And I think that's many times uh, the reason that people don't learn today. So, use the ideal Greek grammar. We'll make our own little postcard. It'll have a unicorn on it too. It says, use the ideal Greek grammar unless you can't find it. And then use whatever you've got or whatever you were assigned. And unless you happen to have curriculum by Jehovah's Witnesses, you're in good shape, right? So don't use it if you have Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I want, I want to take a little veer into historical theology and systematic theology. And, and really what we're talking about here is the doctrine of vocation, the doctrine of calling, really. And it's, it's really the belief, and this was articulated by Martin Luther very well 500 years ago, but it's based on Scripture, 1 Corinthians 7.20 and other passages. It's really the idea that God's providence and sovereignty doesn't just extend to your salvation and to the nations, because God lifts up the nations and he puts them down and they're dust before him, but God's providence and his sovereignty extends to your to, to the daily roles and tasks that you have, to the seminary that you went to, to the professor that you have, to the curriculum and resources that that professor chose and that you have on your shelf. This is not a fatalism or a determinism, but it's remembering that if not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the knowledge and will of your heavenly father, how much more so, little children, does he oversee the Greek resources at your disposal? When I was uh, trying to, I was teaching about a year and a half ago at a conference in, in Greece, uh, oddly enough, uh, to missionaries, and I was trying to get them to understand, because missionaries get so frustrated, they're, they're there to share the gospel, but then they have to spend half their day at some government office filling out paperwork to get a driver's license, and they have to spend so much time each day learning language, and they've got to do the laundry for their kids, and they're doing all this, and they have this sense of... I'm not serving God. I came here to serve God and I'm learning French and I'm, I'm filling out paperwork and all this. And, and I said, I'm trying to help them understand this concept of, of, of God's providence extending to those daily tasks. And again, 1 Corinthians 7.20, Paul saying, each one in the calling to which he was called and that let him remain. There Paul using the divine language of calling to refer to marriage, to refer to someone being in a position of unjust slavery, and yet he says God's sovereignty, he doesn't excuse the injustice of it, he says God's sovereignty extends to the status you find yourself in right now, you can't say that God's out of control in this, and so the image that I tried to give them to, to capture this was, was Jesus, I just found something on the internet, Jesus with outstretched palms and with the wounds in his hand, and then a, a, little, a little note in it about daily tasks to do. Right? And for the missionaries, doing the laundry, learning the language. But just realizing that, that that's true for, for your role as a Greek student as well. Those are, those are tasks that have been divinely given to you. And that 
God's sovereignty is, is over that. So there's not this anxiety about, I have the wrong grammar, I have the wrong teacher, I need to move somewhere else, I need to do this, I need to do that. But uh, to embrace um, the teacher and the resources that God has given to you. And then remembering whatever we do in word or deed, whether we memorize a paradigm, whether we have a dialogue in a living Greek language, we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. At the same time, just as Paul said, if you find yourself a slave and you can gain your freedom, do so. If you find yourself in a pedagogically impoverished situation, then, then if you can gain your freedom, do so. Do so, right? Uh, and if you can't gain your freedom, you can supplement your education. There are lots of free stuff online. I hate to be tooting my own horn, but it's free, so it's not like I'm selling something to you. So uh, there's free stuff, Daily Dose of Greek, Bible Art, Biblical Training. You can always supplement um, your education if you feel that somehow um, you're not getting what you look for. This is caveat number one. Caveat number two, I think, is a significant one. A lot of people have danced around this in the way they've talked about things. But I think maybe economics gives us a term for this. It's the economic problem of lock-in and its relation to Greek pedagogy. Um, the teaching of Greek, whether in person or through a textbook, faces a problem that economists call lock-in. And uh, we can illustrate this with a typewriter. Okay, and I'm, I'm drawing very heavily on a podcast by Tim Hartford called 50 Things That Made, Made the Modern Economy. It's a really fun podcast if you want to listen to it. And a recent one was on the QWERTY keyboard. If you've ever looked at a keyboard, I assume everyone in here knows this, but if you look in the upper left, right, the order of the keys is Q-W-E-R-T-Y. So we're talking about the order of the keys on virtually every, every keyboard. Not only on a, on a typewriter or computer keyboard, but on your iPad, on your phone, right? Why do the keys come up in that order? And uh, you probably know, everyone in here I assume knows, that uh, typewriters used to look like this, right? And, uh, and since the mid to late 1800s, the order of the keys has been virtually uh, set. Um, now, it's interesting that... that studies have been done that this is really not the ideal order of the keys. There, there are many other orders that you can type faster and more efficiently. And, and some people have suggested, it's kind, of, it's kind of an urban legend, that this order was made to slow typists down. Because if you've ever tried to type on one of these old typewriters, you know, just like all the golf club, clubs swinging at the same time, these keys, they all go and they get stuck. So the idea, it's been, it's frequently repeated, well, this was actually the less, the inferior order of the keys was to slow typists down, but we don't have that problem now. According to the podcast, I didn't research this independently, that's not completely true, it's not really true, this order was developed for, um, for uh, people to transcribe telegraphs, so speed was not really an issue there, it was just, just uh, an order that then took over, that became sort of market dominant that was locked in. And even though uh, probably the most well-known alternate keyboard was created by August Dvorak, in 1936, he um, patented uh, a, an alternate keyboard that multiple studies have shown is, is more efficient, is faster, that it actually is economically beneficial to retrain administrative assistants and typists and secretaries to type with this. It, you get all the all that back in a matter of short a matter of time. No one's changing, right? They're not changing because every keyboard sold is the QWERTY keyboard. It comes up as default. 
it's easy now. If you have a computer or a phone, you can choose in settings to change to Dvorak. And there's a right-handed Dvorak and a left-handed Dvorak. And you can go on YouTube and watch videos. You can learn how to do it. Does anyone in here type with Dvorak keyboard? Okay. Lock in. Lock in. Let's talk about the concept of lock in from the viewpoint of Greek professors. Textbooks. Sure. There are quite a few newer and better Greek textbooks out there. But all my quizzes and notes and PowerPoint are keyed to this grammar that I used in college. I'm locked in. And I'd rather have that extra time to write a scholarly article or go biking rather than to retool myself for a better textbook. And the result is over decades, hundreds of students suffer from my inertia or my lock-in. Pronunciation. I learned Erasmian pronunciation with a little southern twang mixed in. <laughs> it works fine enough for me, but from an objective perspective, I can genuinely see how modern pronunciation or reconstructed koine is better. But I learned on Erasmian. All my colleagues at my seminary use Erasmian. The vast majority of Daily Dose subscribers learned on Erasmian. So if I shift to reconstructed koine, I perhaps incrementally help hundreds of new and future students, but I also alienate my colleagues who think I'm doing something weird. Uh, I alienate thousands of Daily Dose subscribers around the world. And, and, and so it's like we're, we're locked in. There's a lock-in for many people, at least from my perspective, from my experience, to the pronunciation system that I'm using. I'm not saying it's ideal, but it's just a recognition of reality. The living language method. At Duke University, I learned Greek under a very traditional pedagogy that focused on memorizing paradigms, parsing, translation. In high school and college, I also learned French, but I learned it as a spoken language. And I can still speak and, and think in French. And it's wired differently in my brain than Greek. It's more immediate and intuitive, and no doubt, it is the superior way to know language. It is. And for the last year... I've been learning Latin. I have never formally studied Latin before, and I was using the Lingua Latina Orberg method. It's very, very well done. It's very fun. And when I'm running, when, I'm, when I go for an hour-long run, I'll listen to Latin stories the whole time, and I'll understand all of it, you know? And it's fun. Uh, and it, it's wired in my brain differently. Like, I see stuff, and I want to say, talk about it in Latin or think about it. And, and, and I can see, the, I can see the, the superiority of that immediacy and intuitive nature of it. However, with Greek, I feel, honestly, I feel, speaking, having taught it 20 years, I feel somewhat locked into my traditional pedagogy. And if I were to switch, what would the students do for second semester? They're, I mean, they, the other teachers are not teaching that method. And that's going to create a scheduling and relational nightmare for me, right? It's not going to be... It's not going to work well, or I'll just become the odd person. You have to always take him for you know, first level, second level, third level. That's not really a very cooperative way to work in, in the school that I'm in. So just, I think I'm not, I hope you hear me. I'm saying these, there are benefits to these other methods, but there is the reality of lock-in. The metrical system, this, <laughs> the metrical system is logical, but, and, and more, but we talk in miles and feet, and, and we're, we're, I really don't see that changing anytime soon in America. Maybe in Canada, you guys, you guys already do that, though. But 
All right, uh, so recapping, caveat number one, use the ideal Greek grammar unless you can't find it, and then use whatever you've got or whatever you were assigned. Number two, writing or adopting the ideal Greek grammar faces the challenge that professors, alumni, and students are already irrevocably locked in to good, but perhaps inferior textbooks, pronunciation systems, and pedagogical methods. Okay, now I'm going to talk about five characteristics, just from my perspective of teaching Greek and I'm sure that the other teachers and students here, if we have time, we could even just have, you can throw in some other suggestions. But these are the ones that came to my mind first. Okay, characteristic number one, an ideal beginning Greek grammar will inspire students to seek spiritual nourishment in the Greek New Testament. Regularly, I'll have a seminary student say to me, why, ask why they should learn Greek. I do not hit them at that point. But sometimes I respond in a parable. I say, I want you to imagine that you're, you know, at University of Louisville and you're talking to someone. They say, I teach French literature. And, and you say, oh, that's fascinating. You know, when did you learn French? And they say, well, I, I've never learned French. You know, the translations are so good. You would rightly, <laughs> you hopefully would have the pres social presence to not open your mouth or go like, what? But you, you would think, this guy's a faker. He's a poser. He teaches French literature and he doesn't know French. Imagine the pastor who gets excited and slams the pulpit and holds, I believe this is the very word of God. Right? And then we could say, that's wonderful. The doctrine of inerrancy, you believe that's the word of God. But when have you taken the time to read the actual Greek and Hebrew words that God breathed out? And if we really believe in the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration, I think it demands attention to the biblical languages. And, and we're saying many similar things to what Michael said here, but sadly, it's not uncommon to find seminaries so streamlining their degrees and curricula that they're making the biblical languages optional. Under former President Obama, there was a competitive educational program in the United States entitled the Race to the Top. But in our current seminary environment, we find something more akin to a race to the bottom to provide the least and the easiest education in the shortest amount of time. It's not uncommon for people to earn an MDiv degree at a very reputable evangelical or non-evangelical institution who had never learned Greek. I was talking to one of our PhD students from Vanderbilt. Apparently Vanderbilt, they don't have to take any Greek or Hebrew. I just, I mean, I was just in awe, right? With schools, schools themselves providing the marketing against biblical languages, it's incumbent upon the textbook itself and the professor to make a constant advertisement for the benefit of learning the biblical language. It's not just saying you'll figure this out later, someday this will be a benefit. But every, every lesson, if you're writing an te ideal textbook, I think every, we're doing this in our textbook, we're every lesson trying to say, look, even this concept you're learning here, this makes a difference in the way we understand a text, keep, guards us against flaw, a flawed understanding or a superficial understanding. In doing this, we're in the tradition of the reformers. Melanchthon, the great contemporary. Oops, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, why not? <laughs> why not? I suggested to Dr. Merkel to give me 20 bucks for every product placement of a book he wrote or co-wrote, so just keep up with it. So one, one reason Ben and I wrote this book was this very reason, is that to, to help professors and, if, and to help students to, to constantly keep before them 
uh, the end the end goal of of and it's it has devotions. Will, where's Will Varner has written one in here, and I, some maybe some of your other ones were just saying, "Hey, look, this this helps us understand the text better. We 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 know God better through the text." And and having quotes from people throughout church history who've seen the benefits. So we're we're basically making a huge marketing campaign. This is really worth the effort. Uh, although I do find I'm not as discouraged as. Some people, I do find that students have an intuitive sense. If I really want to know the scriptures, I, I want to read them in Greek and Hebrew. There's this law, even lay people, you know, who they like, wow, I really wish I could do that because I know, I know that those are the words that God inspired the apostles and prophets to write. Uh, in, in saying this, we're not seeing anything new. Sorry, jumping to Melanchthon. Melanchthon, the contemporary of Luther, friend of Luther, an extraordinary Greek scholar. He said, since the Bible is written in part in Hebrew and in part in Greek. We drink, drink from the stream of both. We must learn these languages unless we want to be silent persons as theologians. In other words, we don't have anything to say because we can't read the words. Once we understand the significance and the weight of the words, the true meaning of scripture will light up for us as the midday sun. Only if we have clearly understood the language will we clearly understand the content. If we put our minds to the Greek and Hebrew texts, we will begin to understand Christ rightly. Again, as I mentioned, many students do not come to class having thought through the value of learning the biblical languages and in fact come with many voices telling them that they could just use a computer, they don't really need to learn the languages, they can use Strong's Concordance, right? We have to inspire them in the classroom and in the textbook with many examples that show them the value of learning the languages. Again, a wonderful resource forthcoming on this, Dr. Merkel's Exegetical Gems from, from Biblical Greek which reviews the concepts, basically, of Greek syntax with a constant uh, attention to the exegetical payoff, the meaning payoff in text throughout the Bible. So that's, that's a, a great way of, of continuing, you know, to, to sort of have the flag and wave the flag. This is worth doing. Look, this will help you read the Bible better. Characteristic number two, in my opinion... It's my opinion. You can disagree with me. An ideal beginning Greek grammar will incorporate mnemonic devices. So I, I don't think that's just something for the teacher to supplement in the classroom. I mean, I think good teaching will use lots of memory devices. And even living, a living language method, I guess we could call a mnemonic device. It's a method of learning and memorizing very effectively, right? And so a mnemonic device, mnemonic method, is just a, a memory method, a method to help you memorize. And I've found that just as students sometimes come uninspired to their study of the Greek language. They haven't really thought logically about why it's beneficial. I haven't been convinced of that. Many of them come without the ability to learn a foreign language. They don't have the skill. They've never learned the skill. They've never been taught the skill of learning a foreign language. So I think we as prof professors need to not only teach Greek accurately, but we need to teach students how to learn Greek and how to remember foreign language, vocabulary, conjugations, and paradigms. And students have different abilities to learn foreign languages. And even in my own family, I have three daughters, and they're wonderfully gifted, they're beautifully made in the image of God, but they're very different in their ability to learn languages. I have one daughter, she just like reads a Latin word or Greek word three or four times, and it's like photographically embedded in her brain. I have another daughter, she can do that over and over again, and it's just like, it just slides off her neural synapses like, like an egg, fried egg off Teflon. It's just, boom, it's just, there's nothing left. So this, this daughter who struggles, I was help, I'm trying to help her learn how to learn. 
And uh, I still remember we had this conversation. She could not remember the word agnus in Latin means lamb. And so for me, you know, I think about terminology I know from music or from theology and agnus dei, but none of that's useful for, you know, a 10-year-old. They don't know that. And don't know, cognates are, you, so I said, what does this sound like to you? She's like, agnus, agnus, agnus. She's like, a goose. I'm like, all right, let's get down the floor. So we get down, we're like, bah, bah, we're crying, and I'm like, poof, poof, ah, quack, 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 like we're going around like a goose. So there's, a, there's an engagement of the mind, sound, right? We're, we're living, it's kind of a living, our own little world of living language. We're, 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 we're using our bodies, we're communicating and, and using association and we, we remember it. But the reality is most students don't know how to do that. And so we have to teach them how to. And so an ideal beginning grammar would teach some of that, I think. Techniques of association, visual memory palaces, songs, all sorts of methods that can be incorporated into a textbook. And if you haven't gotten this in a textbook or... Again, Greek for life, we talk a lot about mnemonic methods there. Danny Zacharias, he has a Greek YouTube channel, which is a bunch of animated cartoon uh, songs to teach Greek. It's a good example of uh, using song and things. So you just Google on YouTube, Danny Zacharias Greek, and they're all free. You can pull up and watch those. Mullen Memory. Okay, this is a free website created by a medical student who got into memory competition. I think he set a record for memorizing a random order of deck of cards in like 40 seconds. Okay, so, and it's all memory technique. You, you actually could do that too. It's not, he's not some savant or something, right? You, you, he talks, and there are little three to five minute videos. He talks about how to learn a foreign language using association and memory palaces and all these sorts of things. It's all free. So, um, if you haven't learned those sorts of techniques in the classroom, maybe you've learned some, that's a way to learn more. Okay, characteristic number three. An ideal beginning Greek grammar will be written clearly and simply. Sadly, many grammarians write for each other. It is somewhat ironic that people who are specialists in linguistics sometimes have trouble communicating with normal people. <laughs> it is. And I'm, I'm someone who's in that field, so I can say that about myself. I can laugh about myself. It is perhaps the minority of scholars who can write in such a way that non, a non-specialist is informed, inspired, and even delighted. So I pulled a Greek grammar off my shelf, a beginning Greek grammar, just sort of randomly, not written by anybody in this conference, and just grabbed a paragraph out of it. Okay, just, I think it's really not a difficult paragraph. Hutas and akenos are frequently used with nouns. When they are so used, the noun with which they are used has the article. And they themselves stand in the predicate, not in the attributed position. Now, that's really not that difficult to understand, I don't think. But you have to think about beginning Greek students who, to whom, even if they learned attributive and predicative position three chapters back, they don't remember what that means usually. Okay, so let's think about how if we could just write things a little more simply and clearly, right? The demonstrative pronouns, hutas, this, and akenos, that, which we realize that's a little overkill. You don't have to, but why not tell students more? Frequently occurs modifiers of explicit nouns. For example, hutas, halagas, this word, or ekenoi, hoi, lagoi, those words. Note in these examples that the words hutas and ekenoi, the demonstrative pronouns, do not have articles in front of them. The nouns they modify, logos and logoi, however, do have articles in front of them. 
This is the normal way for demonstrative pronouns to occur when modifying explicit nouns. It says the same thing, but it's just a little more clear, in my opinion. It's more explicit. And, and we don't need to be shy about being explicit with beginning students, right? Uh, when I, uh, a number of years, about, I guess, 10 years ago, I wrote a book, 40, que 40 Questions book. Notice all the product placement is, is here. Uh, and I was seeking an endorsement for my, for my book, and I just thought I'd shoot for the moon and, and ask Kevin Van Huser, who's an expert in hermeneutics and real famous theologian. And he very kindly surprised me. He wrote an endorsement, wrote a blurb for it. But when he did, he made the offhand remark that I was writing for a different audience than he was, <laughs> which I think was a polite way of saying I had written a children's book while he wrote for grown-ups. <laughs> I do think Dr. Van Hooser and I are writing for the same audience, but I think perhaps I have a bit more realistic appraisal of my audience's ability to digest new and difficult concepts. In January 2019, I taught a Greek review course. Some of you were there, in fact, uh, and, um, on, on Southern Seminary's campus to about 85 students from around the U.S. and Canada. Uh, many of them are, were Daily Dose subscribers. And one of them had recently graduated from a very well-known evangelical school. And he came to me during a class break, and he was just overjoyed. He was astounded. He's like, I didn't know the word declension just was a term for a pattern. He's like, our teacher just used it and never told us what it was. <laughs> so it was like this moment, just a revelation. He's so happy. He's like, I finally know what a declension is. Someone who'd finished, like, several years of Greek, I think, is just... Yeah, so because, um, because too many introductory Greek grammars assume too much grammatical ability on the part of their users, there's actually arisen sort of an entire little cottage industry of producing supplementary books on rudimentary English grammar. And uh, I, I totally... Oh, there's Kevin Van Huser. Thanks for the blurb, Kevin. Uh, here's, here's, here's one of the books. Uh, Zondervan's English Grammar to Ace New Testament Greek. Right, there's a whole series of these. Then there's the... Um, Grammatical Concepts 101 for Biblical Greek. This is just helping people who, who don't understand, you know, what a, what a participle is or, or what a, you know, just some basic grammatical terminology. In fact, my first choice for this, if you don't own this, would be English Grammar for Language Students by Frank Braun. It was written, I think, in the 50s or 60s. It's really cheap on Amazon. It's very clear. It's not only good for Greek, but Hebrew and any other language an English speaker may speak and I, I certainly am sympathetic to my students because I grew up in Tennessee I went to public school I came from a grammatically impoverished part of this nation and uh, so I, I'm sympathetic you know that's okay we can we can start where people are and I think the best Greek grammar if you if you want to write a Greek grammar that that's ideal it's gonna start where people actually are characteristic number four of five, an ideal Greek grammar, or I, I, actually I think I added a sixth one, so sorry about that. Characteristic number four, an ideal Greek grammar will be accurate. Of course, every elementary Greek grammar will include oversimplification, but there's a need to not introduce too many oversimplifications. Every oversimplification is in reality some distortion that the beginning student will have to overcome at their intermediate or advanced level. And Dr. Merkel and I are, are dealing with this now as we're finishing up our Greek manuscript. I mean, you, for example, just, I just reviewed our chapter on the aorist, um, the aorist uh, tense. And it was, it was very distinct about the aorist 
active, the aorist middle, and the very aorist passive. Most, most beginning grammars are very distinct. They just paint out those. But in the Koine period, <laughs> there's this huge overlap of the aorist middle and the aorist passive. And the aorist passive is always frequently functioning as an aorist middle. So if we don't introduce that, I think, I think we're, we should introduce that because it happens with such great frequency. Now, it doesn't mean we have to rename it the medial passive as Peter Gentry does, but we at least have to tell people that it does that and, and prepare them for that reality. Uh, another example of that, oops, another example of that is, um, is about imperatives. And Dr. Merkel has written a very nice article, I think in BBR on this. Is that where it was? Okay. So imperatives... And so the present imperative is commonly taught in beginning grammars that it refers to a, um, a, you know, an ongoing sort of pattern of life, a general practice, and the aorist imperative is used for discrete occasion. And that that's sometimes is true. I mean, that's, there's some value in that broad observation, but as, as Dr. Merkel and some other people, um, Baugh and others have shown, many times with verbs, it seems the inherent procedural nature of the verb influences greatly which form of the imperative is chosen. In other words, the very activity of the verb, whether it's bound, whether it's a naturally bound activity, an activity we think of as being described that would include the beginning and the ending, or if it's whether it's an unbound activity. So it's very common in Greek to find verbs of motion, walking, going, getting up. The verbs of motion are almost always present imperatives, whereas verbs of, that are more telic, like hitting someone, something that's more bound, is almost always, is, is almost always an aorist imperative. So just being aware of some of the, and I think especially as those can be illustrated by text in the New Testament, students enjoy seeing that. And they're like, oh, wow, look at that. And it sticks when they see a text. So there's a, there's a balance. You don't, if you nuance too much, you've got an intermediate grammar, right? Or advanced grammar. But you, you have to provide some level of, of nuance. And so um, I think an ideal, an ideal Greek grammar will do that. Um, and, you know, at a conference like this, we have a variety of speakers. You can see there's, there's some disagreements on, on secondary and tertiary issues, maybe even on some primary issues. But there's also a lot of agreement, right? There's a lot of agreement. And I think that beginning Greek grammars need to focus on, on what we can agree upon and, and, and try to make a good case for them. And I also appreciate, I just want to appreciate someone like Steve Rungi, who is... Uh, even as he's bringing in uh, linguistics, which linguistics can give us really precise terminology to describe what's happening in language. Um, he's also recognizing that previous generations of grammarians often didn't have the precise terminology to describe this, but we're attempting to as accurately as they could with the terminology that they had. So we, we don't need to throw all of them out. Uh, and they, they often had a deep and intuitive sense of the language. Characteristic number five an ideal beginning Greek grammar will have an online portal of ancillary, <laughs> for some reason that word sticks in my mouth every time, ancillary resources. Okay, so if I were talking to the author of the ideal beginning Greek grammar, Ben, if I were talking to you, I'd say it would be foolish of you to think that you could write a print Greek textbook, even an ideal one, and that just on the basis of the superiority of your textbook, everyone's going to adopt it. That's just not the way things work now. There probably is an ideal Greek grammar out there, but none of us know it. It was written in Spain 400 years ago, and it was buried with the Jesuit who wrote it. And, and it, what was the use, right? What is the use of writing the ideal textbook if it's not in the hands of students and professors and influencing 
them so that they love, can read God's word and love God's word and love the Lord and be more faithful teachers in the church. So the ideal Greek textbook will be written to be adopted, not just as some ped, something we put on a pedestal, right? We write to teach and influence. So we must think how to make that textbook accessible and desirable and adopted. And in my, my opinion, uh, for the 21st century, um, the authors of textbook, we have to have a vision. We have to have a passion to impart our knowledge and to inspire. And the printed textbook is just one, one leg of that stool. So it's, it's necessary to have an online portal of resources. And we've already seen many different examples of this. But it, I, I do think, when it, in my opinion, when the textbook comes out, that web page needs to be on the cover and it needs to be up and ready to go. And it needs, here's what, little secret, here's what will often happen. Professors are interested in writing textbooks, but publishers are interested in selling textbooks. Publisher knows there needs to be tests and other things. Professor's already doing something else. He's not interested in doing all that. So they hire some graduate student to do it. So it lacks the connect with the author and the passion and so it ends up not being really all that it should be. So I, I, would, I would make the case, the vision of the, of the writer of the ideal textbook should extend to the an, ancillary resources. It should extend to the online resources. So uh, realizing that if this is really going to be used and adopted, I have to do more than just write a good textbook. That's not enough. I was, I was visiting one of my old professors from Duke yesterday. Yesterday, yeah. and uh, he's 88 now and uh, he told me he's telling me he's like I wrote this textbook on church history Hans Hildebrand he's like it only sold 500 copies he's like but then I did this other thing it took me two hours it sold 140,000 <laughs> so you can't always predict these things but but if we do want again we're not selling textbooks it's primarily to make money we're not suing it so we can say we sold 140 we're selling it because we believe that we want people to read the word of God. We want them to be changed. We want them to be passionate. We want them to overflow with that passion in their churches and in society. I'm, I'm acutely aware of the shortcomings of books that I've worked on and going deeper with New Testament Greek certainly has its. But one thing that we did, I think was helpful was when the book rolled out, we had the website deepergreek.com ready to go with PowerPoint, quizzes, tests, Quizlet, all that, and I do think that that's, that's a reality because you have, that lo you have professors who are locked in, and even if they're tempted to change to your book, they're like, ah, it take forever to make new PowerPoints, to make new quizzes, to make new test students, you know, they're like, how am I going to learn this vocabulary? I can download these vocabulary cards for this other, so if we really want to write the ideal textbook, it's going to have all that in mind and be, uh, be ready to go. Finally, characteristic number six, an ideal beginning Greek grammar will be written by authors who are growing as disciples of Christ. When I was finishing my PhD program at Southern Seminary, my wife and I had a fabulous job. We lived in the basement of this mansion on the edge of campus and we took care of, we were the guest house uh, host and hostess. And so the, uh, when we had you know, famous speakers come in, John Piper or Adrian Rogers or whoever, uh, we, had the, we got to welcome them. We got to, I cleaned the toilets of the best preachers and scholars in America. I could make a list of the famous people I've cleaned their toilet. And what a joy, honestly, it was. It was like washing someone's feet. It was a joy, and I'm, I'm proud that I got to do that. One of the guests that we had stay there regularly 
he's passed away, so I feel like I can tell the story. It's not someone I've mentioned already. <laughs> Is um, he was would fly in regularly to teach, and he had the reputation of being rude and angry. Um, he's also written quite a few famous books. And uh, the Dr. Aiken, who's the president here now, was the dean there. And this, I heard this story secondhand, but I believe it's true because I know Dr. Aiken's character. Supposedly, this guy was really rude to one of Dr. Aiken's secretaries. And Dr. Aiken took him in and dressed him down and said, if you ever do that again, you're fired, right? Just to give you some context. Um, I just, uh, I've seen that guy's books in the, you know, for sale in the library, the guy who was rude many times. I've never wanted to pick them up. I've never, I've never wanted to read them, and I probably never will. No matter how accurate or how pedagogically engaging or how helpful a beginning Greek textbook is, if we, the authors, are not people who genuinely love God and love other people, people who walk with humility and integrity, who seek to share the gospel with our lost neighbors, who are remembered by our students as people who love them, Right? Remembered by our students as people who love them. Then we're nothing but noisy gongs, clanging cymbals. We're nothing and we gain nothing. Yet by God's grace and by the power of his Holy Spirit, I pray we would be people who love the Lord Jesus with an undying love and teach Greek with infective passion, pedagogical skill, and scholarly accuracy. Thanks for your time.